Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, this is the PRC Show, and I am your host, Paul Cooley, and thank you for listening. Today on the show, we are going to go into a new show and a new series about the civil rights movement, particularly reading the book Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch, and I'm going to have my friend Gabe, who's reading it with me, and we are going to go chapter by chapter. We have already recorded three chapters, and I'm gonna, we're going to go over two chapters today. And why are we doing this? Good question. So, does anybody watch sci-fi or the shows, you know, and have noticed that when you watch some of these futuristic sci-fi shows, they have they have overachieved like racism and bigotry and sexism. And how did that happen? Well, who knows in those fictional shows, but you know, it seems like we're a little bit better than we were um, in society in 2021 than we were in 1821 or 1921 or 1980 even. And how did that happen? Overnight, did a guy just say, hey, treat me with respect and dignity. And uh, everyone said, you know what? We should do that. Uh, Society just evolved. Society just said, you know what? We're no longer going to have rules against, you know, uh, women can vote now and uh, different folks can go to school together and all that stuff. It didn't happen just by by uh, osmosis or, you know, people just coming to these conclusions through um, education or whatnot. I guess part of it did, but we're going to uncover that. I think there's this misconception that it just took a couple great leaders and then things changed. And there's def- and it's definitely true that great leaders have played an enormous role, but we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of how change sort of occurred in reading this book. Um, anyways, I think anyways is not a word. It's just anyway, but we say anyways. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to look into that. Maybe we'll discuss that in another uh, literary word podcast. So I want to read this poem before we get into uh, the Parting the Waters show. And I want to say, I don't think we're going to hear the initial theme song anymore. I'm going to put in a new kind of civil rights theme song for our intro music. So that theme song that you hear at the beginning of the show, dun, 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 that is a song that I wrote years ago called July Heat, because I think it was hot in my house, and that's when I wrote it. So we're going to hear a new song, a new theme song coming up, but I want to read this uh, poem by, oh God, I can't speak, Bertolt Breck. He is a German playwright, wrote some poems, but this is going to, this is going to cue off of this, of why we're doing this uh, show. So here we go. I'll read it. I'll make a couple comments and you can think about it. It's called A Worker Reads History. Who built the seven gates of Thebes? The books are filled with names of kings. Was it the kings who hauled the craggy blocks of stone? And Babylon, so many times destroyed. Who built the city up each time in which the Lima's houses, that city glittering with gold, lived those who built it? In the evening when the Chinese wall was finished, where did the masons go? Imperial Rome is full of arcs of triumph. Who reared them up? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? Byzantine lives in song. Were all her dwellings palaces? And even in Atlantis of the legend, the night the seas rushed in, 
and drowning men still bellowed for their slaves. Young Alexander conquered India. He alone? Caesar built the Gauls. Was there not even a cook in his army? Philip of Spain wept at his feet, was sunk and destroyed. Were there no other tears? Frederick the Great triumphed in the Seven Years' War. Who triumphed with him? Each page a victory, at whose expense the victory ball? Every ten years a great man, who paid the piper? So many particulars, so many questions. I apologize for not reading that in a poetic sort of way you're supposed to, but this gets to the crux of why we're reading this book, to kind of uncover a lot of what happened of how we've gotten to this place with race relations in this country now, and that it wasn't just one or two or just a handful of recognizable known leaders. The way this show is going to be done is that I'm going to have a script where I read from notes that I took during the chapters, and then there'll be points where Gabe and I then break from that script and talk about what we read. The first episode or two might be a little choppy, so forgive me for oohs and ahs and oh, where am I at with this and getting a little bit lost. But I think it's going to get better as we go along. Also, the source material is going to get better as well, because the first three chapters are all before major civil rights actions. It's before the Montgomery bus boycott, which occurs in 1955. It's still super fascinating. You're going to hear us talk about Martin Luther King's upbringing a little bit, his uh, struggles with his um, ideas about the world and how the world works, his theology, his education, and also the previous uh, preacher at his church, and just some context of what is going on in America at the time, particularly in the black community. So I think this is a really good show, and I think they're going to get better as we move along. So without further ado, let's get into the new show. Brothers and sisters, friends and comrades, readers and listeners, this is Reading Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch, America in the King Years with Paul and Gabe. Oh, 1954 to 1963. So today on the show, we are going to cover chapters one and two of Parting the Waters. We are also going to use some source material of David Garrow's book, um, Bearing the Cross, which came out in 1987. Uh, Parting the Waters came out in 1988, 20 years after Martin Luther King's assassination. And Eyes on the Prize, the PBS huge documentary. It's like 14 episodes. Um, So why are we doing this show, Gabe? Why are we reading this? Uh, I find this period in time super fascinating, and I am forcing you to read this with me so I can learn more about it. (laughs) Uh... You know, Reconstruction's a super fascinating part of American history, too, right after the Civil War. But we're going to go reverse in time and start with uh, civil rights. This is kind of 
recent history, really. So it's shocking that, you know, I don't know some of this stuff. You're going to find out probably pieces of information that most of you didn't know. And if you want to read along, that'd be great. We're going to try to do two chapters each show. Um, so, Gabe, what's the reason for doing this? Or your thoughts? Yes, I, I'm, <laughs> I am responsive to your demands in, in all things. I, I, I would say this, that I, if I think back to being a little kid, Growing up in Indiana, and so young Americans, specifically a young white kid, right? I think my thinking about American politics and inequity in American society and race and the color line, as Du Bois would call it, it starts with talking about Martin Luther King in school. Yep. And they're the things you learn looking at the world around you, you know, different parts of the town I grew up in or going to the big city, which for me was Indianapolis or Chicago, you see that there's an equity and you start to think about what's right or wrong about that. But the first time that anyone tries to place any of that in context for most little kids, I would go so far as to say most little kids who are, are not black, it's probably learning about Martin Luther King. So to go back decades later and take a really serious look in detail about what made him and his world and the decisions that he made and the struggle that he engaged in that sound like a fascinating experience with you. Absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a good part to uh, just touch upon your first memories of Martin Luther King. And I will tell you mine is I have this memory in third grade at St. Aloysius Catholic School of learning about him where we were watching a kind of like a projector slide thing with an audio clip and uh or an audio clip like you know it was just like these images of pictures of martin luther king and then someone talking about it it was really boring it was dark but i hate to say it i really liked martin luther king because his last he had the junior and i'm a junior and i thought <laughs> he's like me I'm, we're very similar <laughs> uh, i'm obviously being funny but that was just like, oh, he. You know, the lesson is he thought, you know, black and white people should be treated equally. That's kind of, okay, yeah, that seemed to make sense to us. Do you, what was your first memory? About who Dr. King was? Yeah. I, I think it was probably something similar. It was probably listening to the audio and watching a black and white clip of him speaking at the March on Washington. And there's something about the the grandeur and the energy and the power of his speech that can connect to anyone i mean we'll we'll get more into this of course he worked very hard and really intentionally mm -hmm. to be good at that but uh he wanted to con combine really powerful ideas and present them in a way that could be accessible to everyone even a little kid and the other thing i i think is when i was younger and even up to this age almost i had this impression that he was just like a beloved man that everybody liked that you know uh you know, that's why we have Martin Luther King Day. You know, not everybody could agree on certain things, but everyone sort of agreed that, like, yes, you know, we shouldn't judge a man by the, the color of his skin, but the content of his character. And we're going to find out that not everyone, not, he was not beloved by everybody. Um, so should we dive in here and get going or any other thoughts no, on? No, let's do it. OK, so this what we're going to do today is probably try to cover chapters one and two. So if you're reading along, that's. Maybe stop. Maybe turn the podcast off. Go read these chapters. Uh, any thoughts on Branch's writing style? 
Well, let me let me take a, a step back even from that and let's just say something about Branch because um, obviously you and I are people who ha- haven't led a life quite like this, right? We're coming to this decades after Dr. King's death. Um, and Taylor Branch didn't live this life exactly the same way either, except no. it... I think it, w- it profoundly affected him in a different way, right? So he's he's not black, he's white, he's a baby boomer, and but someone who was progressive or liberal, someone who I think I, he's from the South. A- absolutely, he, 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 he's a son, he, he's a son of the South. He goes to uh, college in the South. He campaigned in politics in the South. He became good friends with Bill Clinton, campaigning for McGovern in in Texas, and he becomes a writer and becomes a journalist, and then takes it upon himself to tell this story and in a way that takes the culture and the history and class and issues showing up in the black community really seriously. So he comes to this as someone who's telling the story as an outsider, but one who feels, I think, really passionate about it. Yeah, and I, th- we talked a little off air one- at one point. You said you think Branch is trying to do a kind of epic grand narrative of the civil rights movement, the black experience, and MLK. Um, maybe you said, maybe you said that, maybe you didn't, but like, and that's, you'll, when you're reading this book, you'll see that there's a lot in there that's outside of necessarily America and the King years, 54 to 63, at least the first hundred pages. Um, he really packs in a lot of kind of peripheral things that in, it, they are important. Um, but they're not as it's he, the other book that I've been reading, the David Garrow book. Is a little faster moving, bearing the cross. It kind of starts right off at the Montgomery bus boycott, which we'll get to. Maybe not today, though. Um, and, and of course, look, Branch is not an academic historian, right? He, I don't see him as advancing a particular theory. He's not looking at particular case studies. He's he's building a narrative. He's he's telling a story. Ultimately, he's he's a journalist as a as a man of letters, so to speak. Not yeah. not not an academic historian, but. I think it's rich to get that. It, yeah, and, and, and this this book is extremely rich. And if you feel like he's not the his writing is a little difficult at times, I'm I sort of agree with that. Uh, but it's still good. I give it a, a B plus. Just in terms of his sentence structure, the writing. You know, sometimes I had to, I have to go back and be like, what's he saying? But there are some really beautiful passages too, and he really. Um, well, I'll be reading them later. So we're gonna dive in in a second here into chapter one. Um, but one of the things you're going to be learning here, just little fun teasers, you're going to know, you're going to learn, hopefully today, which character throws themselves out of a window twice, um, who gets criticized for uh, selling vegetables at church and along with fish. Are we even talking about the civil rights movement? Um, then this is this is me kind of being a little bit of a jerk, but um, what historical black intellectual are we going to call, or I'm going to call, we'll see what Gabe thinks. Old sourpuss. Someone that I love and I agree with and I think he's a great person, but, you know, you'll find out. And then kind of an explanation on why some people have letters as first names. You know, that's an interesting thing. And then um, who said, and maybe if you already read this, you'll know, when a professor asked somebody, how are you? Uh, A guy said, I surmise that my physical equilibrium is organically quiescent. I think I said that last word wrong. Anyways. All right. So let's get into this. Um. The first chapter, my God, there's so much going on here. So we have to start with the black church and its founding. And let me move the microphone. Um, so Branch starts 
briefly in 1867, he says this 700 black folks leave a Baptist church and form their own Baptist church, and they actually call it First Baptist in Montgomery. Then 10 years later, that church splits off, and a second kind of exodus occurs when the church is, this church is called the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. This church, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gabe, but is a little more of a working class. That's my terms. He calls it like a deacon's church and says that the members of this one were a little bit more involved and had more say-so in directing the, the church. And who cares about all this, right? Churches, whatever. But it's super important because the black church is essential to understanding the civil rights movement and the black way of life, especially in the 20th century. And Baptists, I guess, are an important component to this as well, because this that's the religion that Martin Luther King is. It's also the Southern Baptists are the, the main folks down there. Uh, and Baptists are from Anabaptists in Germany, 16th century. Uh, they thought that Martin Luther wasn't going far enough um, that if you guys remember from, you know, church history, uh, there was a lot of indulgences when you were like paying for sins, um, church abuse and Martin Luther King, did, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King. Let's not get confused. Didn't like that. Um, but Baptists had no hierarchy, unlike the Catholic Church. There was no education requirements. So it was able to kind of spread the religion faster amongst blacks and whites. And Branch writes that religious oratory became the only safe marketable skill and a reputation for oratory substituted for diploma, diplomas and all other credentials. So all roads kind of converged the black church. So it served not only as a place of worship, but also as like a bulletin board for people who owned no organs of communication, a credit union to those without banks, and even kind of a people's court. This is why the minister was so important. They handed, um, they handled like countless fu- uh, functions in the community. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois said the most unique personality in the 20th century is the black preacher. So this also gives the preacher a lot of power because he's like the mayor, the banker, the judge, the social worker in the black community. And because black folks are excluded from most of white civil society, the dominant group. Um, And unfortunately, he also kind of says that black preachers are kind of uh, not interested in democracy because they're kind of have... I'm going to use my terms here, kind of a mini divine right of kings role, like what they say goes. That is a little different in the Dexter Church, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. That church is a little more democratic, and there's a history of those folks kind of kicking out preachers if they weren't great. Um, And Branch does some examples of this when they get a preacher, they uh, find out he's like beating his wife, (laughs) and they're like, no, you got to go. And then it takes them, they have to go through a whole court case through the bishop, uh, the Baptist convention somehow, uh, they end up getting him kicked out. Uh, anything else you want to mention about this this part, Gabe, before I get to Vernon? I, I think what's really important about it is that Branch is starting his story looking at uh, black agency and black civic organization and also lines of privilege and class within the black community. I think in particular he's focused on Atlanta, although he gets outside of that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you're you're absolutely right about exclusion from society. That the the story starts after the Civil War, but of course pretty quickly he gets to the post-Reconstruction period. So if you think about this in the context of a society in which whatever progress has been made by black people 
after the Civil War, it's being smashed and rolled back by violence and then by new laws and, and social organization of white supremacy in the South, right? Mm -hmm. So where is the space for black leadership and black agency? Where is the space for social organization? And the church and the ministry in particular become a really important place for that and a way to meet all kinds of needs, as you're, as you're pointing out. And he gets into sort of the details, uh, the history of these two churches. The First Baptist Church was, my understanding, a little more um, formal, and then the Dexter Avenue Church, because these, these two churches are going to play an important role in the civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, the one church, the First Baptist Church, also known the Brick-A-Day Church, because people had to bring a brick to, to help build a new one at one point um, in the early 20th century. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who becomes a key civil rights uh, activist, uh, heads up that church. Um, so prior to King getting involved, we go to this... Actually, let me just pause here, because I want to just make a quick mention about the Baptist, because I didn't know anything about Baptist at all. And I was a little confused, and I just did a quick little search on Baptists. And... There's the National Baptist Convention, which when I was reading this, I was thinking like, oh, wow, like blacks and whites back then getting together. No, and that's not it at all. Not at all. The National Baptist Convention is more of the, it's the black Baptists. And they are not Southern races. They're black folks. And the Southern Baptists are the ones that are still not really that great, to be honest with you. I hate to say that, but uh, they came out, I did a quick Google search. And in 2018, they had a resolution on renouncing the doctrine of the curse of Ham as a justification for racism. So 2018, they're saying, you know what, that was a bad idea. We shouldn't have, you know, been racist and well, for such a long time. And anyways, so my my recollection of this is that the Southern Baptist Convention is a, a split from other predominantly white. Baptists in the U.S., it's Southern slave-owning whites uh, sort of defending their prerogative to uphold white supremacy in religion. Mm -hmm. And the National Baptist Convention is the excluded black Baptist configuration, organization of, 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 of pastors in their churches. So they're, they're parallel segregated mm -hmm. structures. That's right. And today, um, the National Baptist Convention recognized women as clergy— they're not homophobic. Um, the Southern Baptists still don't allow women and have, I think, not uh, uh, equal thoughts. Of, uh, homosexuality is a big sin. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting that the National Baptist Convention back in the 40s was a huge organization. It wasn't small by any means. Branch says there was like 5 million people worldwide, which I find hard to believe, but so be it. Uh, so... The church, the Dexter Church, uh, branch picks up with they need to get a new they get needed to get a new minister after icing out this wife beater guy, and so they're looking for one, and they find this guy Vernon Johns, who is a very interesting character, a great speaker. He's like a scholarly preacher, uh, can really hold the audience. Uh, he says, held the congregation spellbound for half an hour without pause or benefit of any notes. And his bio is really fascinating. He um, 
during slavery, his grandfather was hanged for cutting his master in two with a sigh. And then his maternal grandfather was white, who then went to prison for killing a white guy trying to rape his black mistress. So, like, just, you know, you know, in short, like, he... His his paternal grand his paternal grandfather was a slave who killed his master, and his maternal grandfather um, was a guy who killed for his slave. He's a smart dude, intimidating. Went to Oberlin College. Um, there's a scene when a student insulted him on campus and called him a cheater. He punched him in the face. Kind of a bad temper, short fuse. He also was a pretty intellectual guy. He was he talks about the scope trial the kind of theological dis- the discussion and debates that were happening at this time. Um, there was like people kind of questioning the virgin birth. Um, you know, Branch discusses that uh, there was like just a lot of, I don't know, how would you say it? Just different ideas about Christianity that just don't seem to be happening today. I, I love this part of the book and this is something that surprised me that I came for the story about the civil rights movement I didn't come for the uh, the tensions of theological discourse in the early yeah. 20th century I have to say though I really love it because the, the way I see this when we're talking about Jones and then a little bit later when we're introducing the young king as a as a student there's this really interesting tension between intellectual achievement uh, both in terms of accomplishing uh, really important works of theology and progress in theology and brilliance in discussing theology for acceptance in a wider, uh, white-dominated mm-hmm. world, but also for standing in the black community. Mm-hmm. That uh, branch is filling us in on this world of colleges like Spelman and, and Morehouse and intellectuals who care deeply about ideas but at the same time there's a tension with the the sort of popular frankly fundamentalist base of the religion the kind of stomping on the floor of the church um old-time religion which is most popular Mm -hmm. and pastors uh and black intellectuals are kind of walking this line between relevance the thousands and thousands of people, but also wanted to have this intellectual standing on their own. Uh, John's finds his own way to do that. Um, and then Dr. King, uh, or the young King yeah. is going to do that a little bit differently. And he's a real eccentric character. Like he goes around also get, preaching at other churches. Um, and I don't know how he gets this information, but uh, Branch says that, he would travel with um, blocks of cheese and quarts of milk, and he would calculate the distance of how long it took him to get someplace by how many poems he would recite. I mean, just it's like a cartoon almost. Uh, how long it took to the uh, yeah to get to the next church was how many poems he would read or recite in like Keats and whoever they were. I'm not a huge poetry guy, but um, and the sale of produce and farm farm goods is very important part of the yes, story. Yes, this is yeah, this is very important um which we'll touch upon in a second, but he just a little context too. During this time, 
Branch mentions how it's against the law for a white person and a black person to play checkers in public. Um, Bus drivers were empowered to keep a black man's legs from coming too close to the white woman's knees. This was known as the floating line. Um, Drivers uh, could have blacks vacate an entire row. Kind of like a COVID social distancing, but really just for race relations. So dumb. Um, At one point, uh, John's uh, goes to uh, a, a black woman is accusing somebody of rape. He goes to wait, hold on a second. Let me read this. I'm going to pause this for a second. Going back to the uh, black institution and the preacher having kind of like a lot of uh, influence. At, at one point, a woman comes to John's and says, I was raped. It goes to trial, but she, but the, the rapist is acquitted, a white guy, because his wife says, well, I was pregnant, and therefore I gave my husband permission to seek sex outside the home. Um, you know, Johns is really upset by this, and but he there's nothing he can do. And then there's another episode where uh, a guy in his in the Dexter Church kills somebody, and he calls him out right in church and says, "There's a murder in this house." Um, and that guy ends up coming up later in the, in the story. Um, Johns is one of the characters who shows up who. Strike, strikes me as almost entirely fearless. And whatever choices he makes, whatever mistakes he makes, it, he's the first of the characters in the book who really strikes me as incredibly admirable. Not not perfect, but willing to, to take risks, to do what he thinks is right. He was a little bit ahead of his time. He starts to challenge segregation. He went to a place, uh, went to a, you know, a, a diner, to order some food they're like get the hell out of here he poured his drink out on the counter and got chased out um he actually got kicked off a bus because he wouldn't sit in the black section and he's like no and the the, the small little win is they actually gave him his money back well maybe maybe a way to think about this is that he's certainly ahead of the modern civil rights movement but that that resistance to jim crow is really ever present now different okay, people yeah. are doing it in different ways and they're not necessarily organized about it he's not organized he's just taking these like isolated isolated uh actions and there's a there's an isolated action that his god his niece does up in uh baltimore where she goes on a strike for the teachers and she takes all the students out on strike. Do you remember this? Well, yes, absolutely. It's not even really related to anything, but well, it's just like a, it kind of highlights what's going on at the time. This is this is why I like the way Branch is telling this story because one one of the problems of simplifying American history or civil rights history in particular is that you and then there was the Montgomery bus boycott. As right. if no one ever thought of fighting back before Rosa Parks or, and this or Dr. Is, this King. This is kind of what Garrow does, but like... It's not the case, is it? Right, right? no. That pe- people do organize strikes, people do organize movements, and then there's the day-to-day mm-hmm. of being confronted with injustice or terror and then deciding, do you knuckle under, are you subservient, or do you stand up? Do you find a way to push back? And, and it comes in both forms. And, and a little vignette of this is in 1951 when John goes up to Virginia due to an issue of the KKK burning crosses on his brother's yard to intimidate his family over a school strike that the niece, the niece started. 
I mean, she's so awesome. She so she organizes this like school meeting, gets all these people to come in. They don't know. They think the teachers organize it, and then she's like, "Every teacher, get out of here now!" And they leave. And then she was really pissed at the wretched conditions at the school, and she wanted to the school to be better. Um, it was essentially like a wildcat strike of the students. And then, sadly, but maybe for more for her safety, the brother's like, man, can you get my daughter? Like, we're going to get killed. Can you take her back down to, like, Montgomery? Like, this is bad. The K- the clan's here. So then she goes down and, um, you know, leaves, leaves the scene. And critically, he learns about it in a letter. That the mass, and, that there's no mass media paying attention to this. Of course, there's no social media, right? right. And so it is uh, a different time when... The established press um, is not covering the struggle. In retrospect, it's remarkable and sort of prefigures really important struggles to come. And it, it's uh, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, it's it's such a contrast with what happens today when there's an injustice, when there's a police killing. Oh, for sure. Suddenly, everyone in America can see it because people have a, a cell phone video and social media. But this is something a whole strike organized by a young woman and you find out about it because she's in your family and somebody writes you a letter with a pen on paper and puts it in an envelope right. in the U.S. Post. And just more context for the time, um, there's a, a black guy gets sentenced to death for stealing $2 from a white woman. Again, 1950s. I think that was actually overturned. But Johns is really pushing the envelope, so to speak. He has sermons where he says, he, that reads on the, the outward placard, it's safe to murder Negroes in Montgomery. Um, white police officers didn't like this. KKK burned crosses on the church lawn. Um, one of the judges in town was kind of sympathetic and doesn't want this kind of like rioting to occur. Then he has another topic that says, when the rapist is white. So you're like going to church and that's like outside on the, on the placard. This causes actually a little discord among the memberships. And he actually ends up resigning a couple times. And, oh man. And he's selling vegetables in the uh, like th- in the church or in the back of the church. L- l- let's linger on the vegetables. What does this mean, and why is it so important that he's selling produce as a pastor? Well, it's uh, what do you? <laughs> it, it's it's so hard to understand outside of the context that w- why he would be doing this at all, and then why this becomes a controversy or. Uh, controversy, if you prefer, within the church. Here is my take on it, right? That part of what Johns believes is that black people have to have economic self-sufficiency. This is a theme that comes up in lots of different ways in the black freedom movement. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the pastor is engaged in commerce, especially around agricultural commodities out of the back of a truck, is totally contrary to the image that his church members have about what uh, a black leader ought to be doing in public. And but this isn't it's totally not unique to him, because if I remember correctly, um, Martin Luther King's dad would sort of say, oh, we have uh, the barber here. You know, he's doing a great job. Please patronize his business. And then he would take the barber aside and say, hey, make sure you kick into the church's coffers, you know. But the difference is is that Daddy King isn't cutting people's hair 
uh, in public, right, right? Right. I think I think that's the thing that ultimately undermines John's. With it it, it with does his undermine John, John's and his own pride. Like yes. he's ex- an extremely prideful man. And there's a couple. There's a scene where like he screams at his daughter or wife or something. Ends up like causes a big scene. Leaves the house and comes back as if nothing ever happened. Like wasn't going to apologize, but basically okay i gotta stop it here but he was selling these vegetables and people were getting upset with it and then he was like bringing fish to the church and was like smelling and he was like selling that or he was trying to like crowbar the whole loaves and fishes thing into a sermon and he was a real smart dude and charismatic but he had a temper and and he's not letting it drop he's rubbing people's noses in it yeah he and it was just getting too much and he walked out several times and eventually i think it's the third or fourth time where the main kind of clerk or business operations guy, um, what is his name? Nesbit, I think he has another letter name. Um, says, you know what? We're not, we're not coming back to get you here. Um, so that wraps up chapter one, and I want to take a musical break here, and then we're gonna get to chapter two. Any, anything else on chapter well, the, one? Well, 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 this is just when, as 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 a character, I fa- I found uh, myself having so much empathy for him because we all know those people who, out of sheer pride as well as believing that they're right, are just going to keep making their point in more and right. more obtuse ways until people are like, "Get the hell out of here!" And he kind of is right too. So it's like, yeah. Um, but let's take a musical break here. This is going to be a civil rights song. And we will discuss that in a second, and then we'll get on to chapter two.
Okay, chapter two is titled Rockefeller and Ebenezer. What do you know about Rockefeller? Well, to, off the top of my head, the broad, <laughs> broad brushstrokes. I mean, he's right, yeah. he's he's one of the uh, the oligarchs of late nineteenth and early twentieth century America. One of these people who made enormous wealth by creating monopoly and wielding industrial and political power ruthlessly, but who also happens to be a Baptist. And helps fund Spelman College, which is a female black college in the South. Uh, it was named after his sister-in-law. And Branch does like a summary of racism here, um, talking about... Uh, why do I keep saying that? Well, he talks about just the, the need for, uh, you know, again, separate institutions like Spelman College, Morehouse College, uh, which is where uh, Martin Luther King's dad goes. Um, a little tidbit about Rockefeller and just the context of the times and money today. At one point, he just mentions that Ohio officials threatened to arrest Rockefeller if he set foot in the state. Um, he was going there to bury his sister-in-law, but the officials in Ohio were like, you owe us $311 million or we will arrest you. Just think about that. Like this is in like 1915 or something like that. How much money and wealth this dude had. Um, anyways, Branch goes on to talk about Martin Luther King's parents. Uh, they are Martin Luther King's mom was more upper class. His dad, his, uh, the, his grandfather, A.D. Williams, uh, was as the head of the Ebenezer Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And Dad King, um, Mike originally, Michael King, that's right. Um, he was trying to better himself. And he goes to Morehouse, and kind of like the scene out of a movie, he marched into the office, uh, into the registers, took a battery of entrance exams, and he failed them. And he was upset. He went in with all this bluster and, you know, walked into the registers office, pa past uh, secu armed security, and goes into this uh, the head guy, Dr. John Hope, the Morehouse president. And he blurted out this speech about how, you know, he always done things... Uh, the right way and you know he couldn't even read five years ago and now he can and it doesn't matter what test he can take he know he can get through college and you're underestimating me and dag nabbit you know you need to let me in and finally he just like leaves the guy doesn't say anything he walks out uh and then the 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 president's like you know what let's go get that guy i like his character i don't know so he gets he gets admitted uh so he's a he's a Morehouse graduate, he goes there, and then he ends up marrying up to a wealthy woman, Williams. I forget her first name. I mean, the, the story of Mike King, or later to be Daddy King, is... They do refer to him as Daddy King. I think it's weird, but they, that's that, how Right, that, that, that comes later, of course. But it's just... It, it's the all-American, up, up by your bootstraps, I'm going to make my way in the world by virtue of will and hard work. And then compounded by the fact that he's doing this from a position at the bottom of the not just economic but but social racial structure of his whole world, it's really startling how far and how fast he goes. With the help of his father-in-law, who he then takes over his church, and Branch makes the point that Papa King lived with his in-laws until they died, so he lived in the same house. Um, 
Then we take a little detour into liberal Christian theology here. So in the context, he mentions the Scopes trial, which is the trial of uh, teaching evolution in schools. He also talks about this guy, Harry Emerson Fostick. There was a big controversy where this guy is, gets in trouble for saying uh, one of his big sermons was, shall the fundamentalists win? And it seems like they did in terms of Christianity. I don't know. Um, but he was defending theologians like Albert Schweitzer. And this was the idea of, you know, science is emerging, becoming more of a dominant um, view in discourse and in the world. And it's challenging old liberal, liberal orthodoxy, a Christian orthodoxy. And some of these liberal preachers are trying to meld them together and say, it's okay to be, believe in evolution and science and still be a Christian. And they were kind of going a little bit out on the limb in my mind. Like they're saying, you know, you don't have to have such strict doctrines as the virgin birth of Jesus. And, you know, th that's maybe not, we don't need to focus on that. And um, even the element of like Jesus's death was not um, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Um, and it wasn't really necessary for uh, atonement, which is like, yikes, buddy. Like, isn't that the whole point of his death is like for, for sin, uh, wipe away man's sin. But these were thoughts that were going on at the time. A young John Foster Dulles ends up representing this guy, Fodzik, uh, to try to get him back into his Presbyterian church. Uh, and who really cares about all this? But in it's just kind of putting in context the times. Um, but Rockefeller likes this guy for some reason, and he says, "Hey man, can you can you preach at my church?" And he's like, "No, I'm I'm above you, basically, you rich snob or whatever." And he's like, "I'll build you a church." And he keeps at, he keeps pushing to get him into his church, and he's like, "Fine, I'll be you know the minister of your church, but you have to have it in a neighborhood with the poor people." He's like, fine. So he built this really great church. It's Riverside Church. Ultimately, it's a place where MLK gives a lot of his most important speeches. Um, anything you want to add about that little theological stuff that I butchered? Well, just I, just by way of commentary on the book, I like the way how uh, Branch will add detail and depth to these places. Like I knew the Riverside Church by the name, as, as attached to Dr. King's right. sermons, like against the Vietnam War, for example. I didn't understand the connection to Rockefeller, uh, which ties into kind of the architecture to the formation of black elites um, with institutions like Spelman, right? So this was interesting learning for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it definitely just adds such a rich, colorful texture to this whole story. So let's get to MLK. He was born... Um, in June, January, January 15th, 1929, he was called Little Mike or ML. His dad, and going back to like his father, his father preached what branches as a kind of boosterism for local businesses. As I mentioned before, like if a barbershop would join the church, he'd ask people to, uh, you know, attend that church. And when his dad takes over Ebenezer Church, he forms these clubs, which is so weird to me, but they're month clubs. And so people in the church that were born on a certain month, you would be like the January club, then the February club. And the whole idea was to 
um, those clubs would then help raise money for the church. And it was just like this automatic, like, well, I'm in February. I was born in February. There's a, you know, six or 18 of us. And we're going to come up with little plans to try to, you know, raise money. And it was, I don't know if it was competition about it, but. Oh, absolutely. It's competition because his other innovation is to make public how much people are donating. Yes. Right? Because before the cent- anonymous. Cent- centralize yeah. it in, in the role of, of the pastor. He has these really impressive techniques, which you can see as a kind of, Social entrepreneurship, financial entrepreneurship, also obviously from my background and, and yours in the labor movement, you can start to recognize sort of patterns which are also organizing patterns, right? Like what happens if we make become really intentional about recruiting insurance salesmen to the church, people who have, who have developed a model of selling micro insurance policies that people are are paying on weekly or monthly and who are making visits to make collections if we can build a church which incorporates and includes those people then they can also be bringing people into the congregation he, he's really intentional about changing the way that church works to make it more engaged and more lucrative and branch says that he dreamed mike king dreamed of uh prosperity for himself and for his church and he bragged about the loans he had secured and that he rescued Ebenezer's Baptist Church from bankruptcy. And this is in 1934 during the Great Depression. Um, and so the church is doing well. FDR is the president. And he- and that's in contrast, by the way, to what is happening all around them. Like uh, Branch makes the point that two out of three black men in Atlanta are unemployed. Right. right? And that some of the earliest... Uh, recollections that um, the young king has is of the breadlines. That's right. Which is teaching him important lessons about the the economic as well as sort of social standing of black people, but also creating this uh, painful realization that his own economic and social standing is above a lot of other black people, which seems to be something that he's really attentive to and that he struggles with uh, as he goes through his life and obviously shapes choices he makes. Yes. And so the church is doing well, and Mike King is like, hey, uh, send me to Europe. Send me to the Holy Land. And Martin Luther King Jr., MLK, who his name is actually Mike King, uh, is five years old at the time. Until his father returns from this pilgrimage. Yeah, so, so it's, it's a little strange to me that he goes on this, but he does. Um and I just want to mention, which we talked about early in the show, this whole idea of the letter names. Um, so under slavery, you know, name was property of the master. And one methods folks used to prevent whites from calling them by their first names was simply by not having one. Like to, to So uh, there's a character, James Meredith, that we're going to talk about later on, I assume. His initial first name was just J.H., and then later on, he actually, well, I guess I should have a name to it. But uh, this was actually a, kind of a pain in the butt for the Atlanta uh, bureaucracy to kind of fix that. But, um, and okay, let me, uh, I, dig- I digress a little bit here. Yeah, he, I'm just mentioning the bread lines. Yes, just going through the book. Uh, MLK says that the bread lines kind of contributed to his uh, anti capitalist feelings. Two thirds of adult Negroes, as you definitely recalled, were unemployed. Um, so MLK is motivated by his sister. He always looks up to her. She's super smart. Um, and he was very attached to his grandmother. Um, she was kind of like the most important person in his life. 
And at one point, uh, there's an episode where his younger brother slides down a banister and knocks his grandmother out. This is when MLK is pretty young. He basically gives the grandmother gets a concussion. She was fine, but as the as the family members race to her, they start shouting and moaning and wondering if she's alive. Panic sets in with MLK, and he runs upstairs and he throws himself out the window. And this is actually mentioned not in Branch's book alone, but also in uh, the Garrow book. Uh, and then just in years later, when his grandma dies, when he's a teenager, he was so overcome with feelings that he again goes upstairs and throws himself out the window. And it's almost like, is this real? Like, what's going on here? But I think it's just to illustrate his strong, you know, feelings of love. Um, it also kind of shakes him a little bit because it... Branch says it kind of shook his religious belief and, and makes him question, like, mortality. Um, they said in the book that, you know, he was crying so hard that they didn't think he was going to be able to keep it together for the funeral because he was such a wreck. But, you know, he actually was. They did fine. Um, anything you want to comment about that? Well, I found this confrontation with mortality and as a challenge to faith really interesting. So... My family isn't religious, and when we encounter death, we don't talk about it in religious terms. Yeah. So I have to say that um, I have to challenge my own thinking about death when I'm imagining the young king dealing with the death of this really powerful and impressive uh, matriarch. Yeah. But that as a sort of intellectual jumping off for king, making him think really critically about everything that he's been taught about the order of the world and divinity. It's in a sense, a kind of a secular liberal germ mm -hmm. in, in his thinking, yeah. which he does really uh, intense intellectual work to sort of assimilate uh, to the role of being a Christian, which I find again, uh, something I can't connect with because right. I'm not a, a Christian, but it's also, I think, incredibly impressive considering he's doing all of this more or less as a student on his own mm -hmm. uh, and that it is, it becomes it part of a whole intellectual project which is about his own autonomy in opposition to his father, which I find quite moving. Yeah. And we are actually going to take a detour actually right now because Branch does. <laughs> So we have to go. Not to the, for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So. Nor for the last. Yeah. And I'll just say when you're reading the book, it doesn't seem like that much of a deep tour, but they are. I mean, we're going to go now talk about Du Bois and the NAACP, but it's all again in this rich context of the black experience. Would you say that's kind of what what he's doing? I, I think that that Branch feels like he has to take that seriously. So that we understand, in the same way that later on he'll talk about what music is playing on the radio, he, I think he wants us to appreciate the world that Dr. King is yeah. in. Yeah, it's like a fire hose of information. And that's why you're not going to get this from any other podcast. You're going to get all the information. Again, this is an encyclopedia compendium. Where we're, co we're covering everything, pretty much. So w Whether you want it or whether not. Whether you want it or not. So W.E.B. Du Bois, he's an NAACP uh co-founder, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and brilliant scholar and essayist, 
graceful writer, committed crusader for justice. There is a book that we all need to read. We're going to do another podcast about it. It's called Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1877. I can't wait to read it. I'm waiting for them to come out with a new edition with a foreword by Eric Foner, which hasn't been out yet, but that's what I want him to do. I should email him. I met him, by the way, once. Eric Foner, my favorite historian. Um, uh, So... So he was a great, great guy, but he, Branch Wright, suffered all the liabilities of an elitist intellectual. And while we learn ML was a likable guy, didn't seem to have a short fuse like Dubois, um, Dubois kind of seems like a grump. And I hate to say that. I like him. I, I'm not trying to, you know, besperch the man. But there is a reason why he doesn't become maybe a better leader in history than you would think with his how much he's cited in all his when Du Bois is honored by Harvard as being the first black PhD Hmm. Du Bois said in an icy reply the honor I assure you was Harvard's which I think is badass actually Um, so he goes to battle with NAAC he or he belittles NAACP programs he's a editor of the crisis which is the magazine of the NAACP um he's not is he an editor or just one of the writers so walter white is a person that writes for the crisis and he says he has no brains so that's not helpful in the you know he says kind of that publicly or in a magazine um and he's just having problems with uh naacp leadership and so they hire this future civil rights activist roy wilkins to control uh, dubois and Wilkins has a pretty fascinating story, so we go a little more detour. But Wilkins was the grandson. Actually, I think this is really important. So he's the grandson of Mississippi slaves. He was abandoned by his father as a small boy shortly after his mother died. Goes to Minnesota to live with his uncle, who's a butler for the president of the Northern Pacific Railroad. Things are going swimmingly for him. He's in Duluth. Um, then his vagabond, no good for nothing, father comes to try to battle for custody for him. And thank God his aunt and uncle, like, keep him. Then he goes to the University of Michigan. And I just want to pause, put a pin on this, because it's, like, crazy for me to think about. He goes to an integrated college. So I, I'm sorry to say this, but the North is kind of better for for black people at this point, you know? Just absolutely, it, it, it's just almost well, unmentioned. Well, well, let's let's just... Okay, uh, put, some, put some structure around. Do you want to? Do you there want me are, to stop the, well, the, the we, cheerleading for the North? We know that there's some institutions which are behaving differently um, because of particular leadership or, or history or tradition, which doesn't necessarily tell us about what the rest of society in those communities is like. Fair point. And that gets and that gets raised when uh, King, the young king himself, goes to um, study theology in Chester, Pennsylvania. Right. Right. But it's it's. I think Wilkins is is a fascinating story. But uh, let, let me come in here because I think that this um, this is one of these moments where the branches writing about Du Bois um, reminds me about some of the lessons you and I have learned in the labor movement, right? Just to pause here, uh, I used to work for a union for six years. Gabe still works for that same union, healthcare organization, Healthcare Pennsylvania, SEIU. That's right. And the, the person with the most brilliant writing or clearest ideas uh, or most far-seeing intellect is not necessarily the person who has the most people follow them into conflict. Absolutely. And this is something which 
should be obvious, but it's a problem of intellectual history when we focus on great minds to to then sit back and think, well, wait a second, why are they not leading the way and having I mean, this blew success. my mind because Du Bois is mentioned all the time and his writings are so important. So you just think of this giant and it's like, wait a second, this guy's an old sourpuss. People aren't following him and he's causing problems and he's kind of being a jerk. Anyways. Right. He has intellectual leadership, but not human leadership. He has some, yeah, not the best people skills. So Roy Wilkins goes to Minnesota. Then he works as a journalist for the Minnesota paper, becomes editor of the Kansas City Call. He kind of thinks of himself as an elitist. He ends up marrying uh, a light-skinned Catholic woman. Um, Branch doesn't portray him as a hothead radical for full equality at all, but writes that he saw the NAACP's goal as the achievement of ordinary fair play between the races. He was unflappable and could speak of the cards we had to play in the middle of a riot. So I think that's a really important part. Like he's like a, he's off, he's playing three dimensional chess, you know, whatever they say. Like he's, he can see what's going on. He's not operating out of Vernon John's full emotion or egomaniac from Du Bois. And he makes Du Bois just irritated. And this is one of my favorite stories, a little brief. He writes a sports story about a black track star for the crisis. In fact, I love this so much because I think this gets to the crisis of a lot of movement and left-wing worldview stuff of like, you know, he wants to say, hey, there's this black track star. It's kind of entertaining. Let's put this in the magazine. And Du Bois is so angered by it, he sandwiches the story between some very dry, boring, literary, sociological pieces about race. God damn it. Come on. People don't want to read. I mean, we do want to read that. We should learn those things. But let's have a little fun. Let's talk about music. Let's talk about sports. Why does it always have to be so drab, Du Bois? So Du Bois is thinking that he's dumbing it down. Um, and he's just, you know, not into that. It's, it seems like they have a very different conception of what a paper like The Crisis is for. That, And they're, they're also of different generations, right? Yeah, Du Bois is, I think, in his 60s at this point. We're talking 1950s here. Uh, there's this real Will Rogers event. So there's the first major campaign is uh, of the, of the I guess, Roy Wilkins NAACP areas. When, like, Will Rogers, who was like a... What, what was he? He was like a, a cowboy. Radio, radio entertainer. Radio entertainer. He uses the N-word a bunch of times in his NBC show. And Wilkins bombards the, the, the place... With um, he sends a bunch of emails. <laughs> he sends a bunch of telegrams, which those were like emails back in the day, uh, to NBC, Gulf Oil, you know, cancel culture. <laughs> this is when it was good. Oh God, let's not get into that. So, um, and then NBC is like, you know what? It's his First Amendment right. He can say the N word if he wants. And so, in a slap in the face on the air, which we're paying for, which we're paying for, and this is where I'm collecting money from sponsors for. And this, this is where I want to like tip over my computer and scream because then a slap in the face two weeks later, NBC censors all mention of race, segregation, or lynching from a show about the 25th anniversary of the NAACP. Okay, so it's like we (laughs) he could use the N word, but let's not talk about that on when we're talking about a, a you know black civil rights organization. Um. So Wilkins cranks out more emails, <laughs> or more telegrams. Um, Will Rogers switched to another more acceptable term, which I'm not even going to say. I'm just going to spell it. 
D-A-R-K-Y. I mean, is that worse? <sighs> um, so, and then they, and then like NBC's like, we're not even going to do anything on the NAACP, any, NAACP anymore. No shows on at all. Um, okay. Let's get back to Branch's writing. So 1934, Du Bois is 66. He has little money. He's growing pessimistic. Um, oh, this is where he... Hold on one second. got to read my notes because I don't want to mess this up. Th- yeah, then Du Bois does this thing where he kind of just changes his whole idea about things and said, you know what? Segregation is always going to be here. I hate it and all that stuff, but we just need to fo- focus on black institutions and for our own psychic, psychic well-being. This is almost... If we do, we have to talk about Booker T. Washington and W. E. B. Du Bois and the whole debate. Let's just two sentences on that because I think we have to. Well, I you can talk about Washington, but I I think that there's this a, a, always a general tension between trying to make a world within segregation uh, as rich and rewarding and economically sustainable as possible versus trying to change the whole country and confront white power. Right. Right. So it's like reform revolution or however you want to say it. But really it's, you know, uh, Washington was like, we need to have the talented 10th. We need to, we need to have our own institution strong and focus on ourselves. And then Du Bois was like, we need to end segregation. We need to have full equality. We need to be integrated in society. We need full rights. And so until he changes course and here. then, and then he changes course, but I don't think it's genuine. And I'll explain in a second. So he does say this, he angers his base. People are like, what the heck? Why is he embracing Jim Crow? Um, just to mention Jim Crow, if you don't know, Jim Crow is the term used for segregation. Landmark in 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case that said, you know, there is a such thing as separate but equal. It's a uh, train that uh, this guy, I don't know if it was Plessy or Ferguson, um, went to the Supreme Court. So it turns out that Branch speculates that he took this turn because he was, I think, upset a little bit at the NAACP, but also he was helping a friend raise money for some black colleges. Um, and he was kind of also down on his luck and just not in a good place. So he gets iced out of the NAACP, and then he goes to Atlanta to go on faculty. And then, sadly, he ends up getting iced out at Atlanta due to a Rockefeller kind of uh, academic in the Atlanta community um, that kind of gets him out. But so while this is going on with a, you know, Branch makes us believe that the Du Bois Wilkins squabble is actually occurring in the public sphere and people are learning about it. And even like white reporters are kind of commenting on it. Like, Oh, look at these guys. They don't got their like crap together. Um, and okay, where do we go? And, and like dad King kind of daddy King is kind of, taking both sides sort of and and MLK's father at this time is actually organizing some voter registration drives, leaving uh, leading several hundred people to the courthouse to register Um, more context. There's gone with the wind that comes out in 1939, which is also kind of like a polarizing movie in the black community because you have a black actress that is kind of like in a mainstream film. It's like the best film of all time up to that point. It's a big epic, but it's also pretty racist. So, you know, Dad King has an there's an event where, you know, 
they show the movie and I think his choir sings or something and people are like, how dare you like support this racist film? Dressed in antebellum costumes. Yeah, yeah. Memory serves. Um, yeah, just like it's shameless and it's awful. Um, okay, so let's get back on to MLK himself. So this is a young guy that, uh, God, where do I go? So he he's a pretty smart dude from the from the get go. It's pretty clear that he's really um, a lover of language. Nice sharp dresser, he says. He says he uh, a penchant for tweed suits, something of a dandy, meticulously groomed and fastidious about his clothing. Which I kind of think of you, honestly, Gabe. You you I may share the Martin Luther King Jr. aspect, but you share his penchant for fastidious clothing. So you like this hoodie. Gabe's actually in a tuxedo right now. Um, so he goes to Atlanta University Laboratory School, which is essentially a high school that's part of this college. But because of World War II, they cut the funding. So then he has to go to a regular high school, which is Booker T. Washington High School. And then after the war, such a smart dude, he ends up going to Morehouse at a really young age. I think like maybe 15 or yep, something. 15. Yeah. He's interested in becoming a doctor, but he finds that too cold and gravitates towards the humanities. Meets his friend Walter McCall there. Kind of a gruff uh, and tumble guy. They uh, wrestle around, and but end up becoming good friends. So he majors in sociology, um, and Walter Shivers is his advisor and primary teacher. Taught him um, about uh, racism in Marxist terms and says it's like, you know, necessarily... Uh, it's a you know a byproduct of the economic system that benefits whites, and this is attracted to him, attracted, attractive to him. This idea. Um, we also get into just MLK's interest of some sinning in terms of Daddy King playing cards, billiards. My God, put that bull stick down, son. Dancing. He had fun in college. He seemed like a fun guy. He loved word games, and then even in the summer, he worked for the Atlanta Railway Express Company. But then he ended up quitting one time when somebody called him the N-word. He's like, no, don't call me that. You, and then there's the door. Leave. So, you know, he has some principles. Um, and he has, of course, an, an intellectual justification for things like playing cards. He's starting to take on board the social gospel, which is a sort of major, uh, I guess you could say, interracial, liberal framework. That's in Chapter 3. We will talk about that, actually. I'll stop right there. You, no, but no, that's that's good. I, he mentions it a little bit. Um, chapter two, I don't know. There's just, you know, Branch does a little more context about what's going on in the world. 1946, you know, the war is ending. There's a lot of upheaval with general strikes, you know, goon squads, uh, emergency government programs. The Soviet Union is kind of splitting up the world. Colonized people in Asia, Africa are de- are denouncing like this hypocrisy of democracy when they're being, you know, run by other, um, you know, Western democracies. Um, uh, black soldiers are returning and demanding full rights because they were like, what the heck? Why are we fighting for democracy when we don't have it at home? Um, lynching starts to become back in the headlines. So let, let, let's linger on this because yeah. I, think, I think this is really important that this happened after the First World War as well, that uh, the summer of racist violence that follows the war is called the Red Summer. And there's a similar dynamic here, except it's even more 
uh, because lynchings intense. go down, lynchings go down in America, and then they start to come back. Well, let, let's just let, let's say something specific about the Second World War. It's against fascism. It's mm-hmm. against Nazism, which is overtly racist, and black liberation activists, organizers, thinkers talk explicitly during the war about a double V campaign, right? The victory over fascism abroad and the victory over racism at home. And that the societies, all the societies, frankly, at the end of the Second World War were optimistic and hopeful. And you can see sort of efforts to make social change in other countries as well after the war. And it creates this reaction, in particular in the South, uh, to push back against the, uh, this growing expectation um, for black people, in particular returning black servicemen who have fought this war. I think there's like a specific reference of, of six lynchings. Yeah, I'm, let me mention that because if Jump it, in, yeah. people should uh, bite down on their wallets and just say humanity was really upsetting here. So what happens in Georgia, the first multiple lynching since 1918, one of those six um, veterans died when a group of black veterans, a group of... Ho- um, Hooded men pulled these folks with their wives, uh, or a black couple out of a car near Monroe, I guess that's Georgia, lined four of them in front of a ditch and fired a barrage that left reported 180 bullets in, okay, it's four corpses. And this is what just drives me nuts. State investigators in Monroe complained that the best people in town won't talk about this. And then the FBI came in and a grand jury failed to indict. It's just like, no, no justice order, like can't even get to a trial because no one's going to even talk about like this happening. And this is this Monroe, this Monroe lynching was one of many that uh, kind of puts a fire under the NAACP or they use this as a way to, they they talked to President Truman and he apparently expressed outrage and appointed a special commission. And Branch gives the impression that Black leaders are like, they're like, oh, this is cool. Truman's taking this seriously. Um, they're excited that, that, oh, like a president's actually taking some action on it. It's the first time a president calls for an anti-lynching bill. <laughs> My God. Yeah. And it, it is worth saying something here about this is this is an arc of uh, political change, which, which is remarkable, considering that Truman started off as part of a white supremacist Democratic mm-hmm. Party, I believe as a young man was briefly a Klansman himself, mm-hmm. and is now at a point where coming out of the war, he's the first president to sit down with the NAACP. He's listening. He's starting to take some action. This is a party, which is a segregated party. This is a party with a major... Com- it's, it's really hard to understand in context mm-hmm. of the Democratic Party of today, but there's a major component which is overtly white supremacist and Truman in this context is taking some steps which have never been seen before in the, in the history of the Democratic Party the oldest extant uh, party yeah. in, in democracy in the world yeah and, and you know several previous presidents before them were just explicitly racist you know showing birth of a nation he, he talks about that earlier in the book um, it's much further than FDR himself ever went yeah Anything else we want to talk about with chapter two, you know, uh, he ends the book with uh, King going to... Ends the chapter. Yeah, ends the chapter, sorry. Going to Crozier uh, Theological School um, in Eastern PA. Um, 
any thoughts on those first two chapters? You know, you want to like pick up your book and look through it and read it a little bit. <laughs> I, I start getting excited when we get to the the, the post war period. Yeah. I I think it's a it's a really intense uh, time of different conflicts starting to mount and and come into uh, into tension and. I love the first two chapters, but if, if someone was to start to read this book and they didn't have that much time, I would say you could start with chapter three, which is going to be, we're going to get to next, which is Niebuhr and the Pole Tables. Is that how you say his name? Niebuhr. Niebuhr, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're going to leave it for there. Then we're going to do chapter three next week. Thank you for listening and pick up the book and stay tuned. I wanted to comment that the musical break was the Staple Singers, which is awesome. And how were they able to make better music at that time, specifically recording it? You can hear all the instrumentation. They're panning things. You got singing on the left, singing on the right, guitar on the right, a little more drums on the left. I forget how it goes. But God, the 80s like really ruined music in some ways, although I love the 80s. But they just compressed things. Everything was mono sounding or just... Man, that those two recordings have so much space. I love it. I'm also uh, listening to more civil rights music, and we will be peppering that in throughout these shows. All right. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The PRC Show. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash prcshow or follow us on Tumblr at prcshow.tumblr.com. All of these episodes can be found at soundcloud.com slash prcshow. Your host is Paul Robert Cooley Jr. Technological consultant, sound design, host curation, and music production is also by Paul Robert Cooley. Emotional support brought to you by the roommates of Salvador and Kate G. Executive producers Josh Ferris. All labors donated. Thanks for listening.